This week, working hours for surgical residents, a randomized control trial, and improving antibiotic prescribing in primary care, a randomized control trial. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma, a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by Nathan Zilbert, who is a general surgery resident also at the University of Toronto. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Very well, Amol. How are you doing? I am good. So, Nathan, it's uh, six o'clock in the morning, and we're doing an emergency recording session because uh, the episode that we recorded over the weekend was uh, like had technical errors or whatever. So, can't trust technology sometimes. <laughs> isn't that what they say? Never work with technology or animals. Um, you know, showbiz. Uh, so. If there was ever a more appropriate week for us to be talking about surgical working hours, it would be the week in which I tried to reschedule a recording session with you and realized that the only time it could happen was at six o'clock in the morning. Um, you work many hours, my friend. Well, uh, to be honest, I would be sleeping at this point in time because it's my academic half day. But uh, nevertheless, here we are striving striving to ensure that our listeners get the the weekly dose of the rounds table that they have come to rely on. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners are very grateful for your uh, diligence and dedication to the to the podcast. So thank you. And, for... and yours is always a more. <laughs> um, so Nathan, let's my dive... back. My back hurts from you patting it so hard. I hope yours uh, <laughs> hurts too. You have a giant, a mole sized handprint <laughs> on your back. Okay. So um, Nathan, uh, before we dive into our papers for this week, actually, we have a special segment from uh, our medical student, Jennifer Peng, who's going to talk to us about primary care for uh, men who have sex with men. Hey, everyone. This week's clinical encounter segment will focus on the primary care of men who have sex with men, also known as MSM. MSM are a distinct population at increased risk for certain health conditions, many of which relate to sexual practices. Timothy Wilkin, an infectious disease specialist at Cornell, recently summarized the following recommendations for the primary care of MSM in the New England Journal of Medicine. The first is, ask questions about sexual behavior and identity. Some men who have sex with men do not identify as gay, so it's important to distinguish between the sexual behaviors and sexual identity. Conduct an ongoing assessment of sexual activity. Ask about number of partners, types of sexual activity, such as receptive or insertive anal sex, oral anal sex, and oral sex, and the use of condoms. For the reduction of the risk of HIV, ask the patient about their own HIV status and the status of their sexual partners. Recommend consistent use of condoms and inform the patient about the availability of post-exposure prophylaxis especially in the context of patients who engage in frequent high-risk sexual behaviors. As part of screening for sexually transmitted infections, obtain urinary, rectal, and pharyngeal specimens to conduct nucleic acid amplification tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and conduct tests for syphilis and infection with HIV and hepatitis C. For asymptomatic, sexually active patients, testing should be done annually, 
and for those who engage in high-risk sexual behaviors, testing should be done at least twice annually, as syphilis and rectal infections with gonorrhea and chlamydia are often asymptomatic. Recommend vaccination against infection with hepatitis A, hepatitis B, HPV, and meningococcus. HPV should be offered to all men who have sex with men through 26 years of age to prevent HPV-related diseases such as genital warts, anal cancer, and penile cancer. The 9-valent HPV vaccine offers the greatest HPV-type coverage. As part of other screening, inquire about depression, use of tobacco, drugs, and alcohol. Each of these is more common in men who have sex with men than in the rest of the population. Consider screening for anal precancer or cancer, which can be considered starting at 30 years of age. Although benefits of this screening have not yet been proven, the rates of anal cancer in this population are similar to the rate of cervical cancer before the introduction of routine screening. We hope you found this installment of Clinical Encounters useful. If you're interested in reading the article, as always, you can find a link in the episode description of today's podcast. If you've enjoyed this segment, give us a shout on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks for listening. Back to you guys. Okay, thanks so much, Jennifer, for that thoughtful snippet on uh, an interesting and important and uh, in many ways unique uh, patient population. So we are going to uh, change gears and dive into our first paper. So Nathan, talk to me about this randomized control trial about duty hours for surgical residents. Tell me what's the what's the one-liner of their finding? The one-liner is that in this uh, randomized control trial comparing conventional uh, American duty hours regulations to a, a more flexible policy, that there was no difference in either patient outcomes for mortality and complications or resident perceived training satisfaction and well-being. Okay. So, um, Nathan, duty hours have been, I think, on the lips of medical educators, certainly for as long as I can remember, uh, talking about trying to make training more humane for us residents, while at the same time, uh, you know, preserving patient care quality. Uh, so tell me what's unique about this study? Yeah, so uh, so you're right. I mean, certainly, I think since we've been in training, uh, this has been a, a hot topic. And uh, really, in the United States, uh, a major change occurred in 2003, when uh, the organization that accredits American uh, residency programs uh, put forward uh, a slew of uh, duty hour regulations, uh, most notably the 80-hour work week. But with that, uh, some rules about uh, duration of being on call and also uh, minimum amounts of time off between shifts and minimum amounts of days off per week. And all of this was kind of in the in the background of some high-profile uh, medical errors and complications that were thought to be uh, at least partially related to, to resident fatigue. So as you say, this uh, this effort has come with uh, a dual goal of both uh, patient safety and improving resident well-being. So the the flip side of initiatives like this is that uh, there's concerns that these will have a negative impact on training and and in surgery specifically, the concern is about missing uh, opportunities to operate and missing the continuity of care of taking care of. Uh, the same patient and, you know, admitting them, operating on them and, and looking after their post-operative care due to the increased uh, number of handoffs and requirements to leave the hospital, perhaps in the, in the middle of a patient's course. So what this uh, randomized control trial did was uh, obtain a, a waiver from uh, the 
uh, American society that accredits the medical uh, training programs, the ACGME, to uh, allow the programs randomized to a more flexible uh, uh, duty hours regulations to not have to enforce uh, a number of the uh, a number of the required rules uh, in the United States. Okay, and so um, tell me who was involved in this study. So the study was involving general surgery residency programs, and that was the uh, the level of randomization. So programs were either randomized to the status quo or to a a modified, more flexible uh, duty hours uh, uh, system. Okay, and how many programs did they include? They had 117 uh, programs that uh, met their inclusion criteria, and, and their main inclusion criteria was that the hospitals and and, and uh, university programs had to. Uh, participate in the National Surgery Quality Improvement Program, which we've talked about before. So th- this is an initiative where uh, hospitals collect patient-level data on uh, comorbidities, complications, and operations performed, and it allows for benchmarking of surgical outcomes. So it's been used for a variety of different research uh, initiatives, and in this case, they actually used it to compare patient outcomes between programs on these different types of call schedules and duty hour uh, policies. So it's an interesting application of the NISQIP data. Yeah, absolutely. And so did they have any exclusion criteria? So the main ones were not being a NISQIP program, being on any kind of probation with the ACGME, being a, a program in New York State where uh, duty hours are, are regulated by state legislation. So they weren't able to uh, get a, a waiver in that case. And uh, programs that they described as being new, well, I'm not sure how that was uh, defined. Okay. So Nathan, tell me uh, exactly the differences between the two groups. So if you were randomized to the standard duty hours, it's what you talked about, certain restrictions, maximum 80-hour work week, no more than, what is it, no more than 16-hour shift? No more than 16-hour shift for PGY1 residents and no more than uh, 24 hours plus handover for PGY2 to 5 residents and uh, an 80-hour work week and then certain number of hours, a minimum number of hours off between shifts. Usually can, it's supposed to be eight to 10 hours off between shifts and having a uh, at least 14 hours off between 24-hour uh, calls shifts. And so, what was their intervention group then? So the intervention uh, allowed some leniency in four of these areas. So the overnight or consecutive duty hour rules, there were no uh, limits on those for residents of any level. There was no requirement about certain number of hours off between shifts, both regular shifts or 24-hour shifts, but they maintained the overall 80-hour workweek requirement. They maintained the uh, one day off in seven requirement, and they maintained the not being on call more frequently than every fourth night requirement. So this is still a uh, – the flexible policy obviously still has uh, some structure and and certainly is not a uh, – a return to the the pre duty hours people could work 120 hours a week uh, for weeks on end uh, system, but it's uh, lenient in the in the ways that I that I just reviewed. Okay, and uh, did every one of the intervention sites have to have the same work hours, or they were just allowed to pick and choose which ones they followed? They were basically allowed to pick and choose the way that they uh, determined adherence in the intervention group was basically asking the program director of that residency program, are you being lenient or uh, uh, allowing flexibility? 
in any one of those four categories. And if you were, they deemed you as uh, compliant with the protocol of the study. So there definitely could have been some variability in the extent to which the programs randomized to the flexible uh, group uh, implemented that strategy. Right. So, you know, they weren't overly prescriptive in the protocol. And so I guess it has the the benefit of allowing you to enroll many, many programs and do it at a relatively cheaper cost, uh, but has the downside of being a little bit messier in terms of knowing exactly what was going on. Yeah, especially since they didn't have the ability or, or, or were not able to uh, tease out uh, the details of, of those differences. So we don't even know the extent to which it was messy or the extent to which, uh, you know, was it any one of these uh, four regulations that had a waiver uh, allowed for it that more programs were choosing to uh, make amends to and not others. We don't, we don't have any information about that. Yeah. And the main thing I guess is we don't have data about the exact number of hours worked by the residents, right? So we don't actually have the outcome to know how much difference was achieved between the groups in terms of working patterns. Right. We just know that in both groups, it was capped at 80 hours. Yeah. And, uh, and we know that they didn't have the, the, the rigorous restrictions about uh, call shift length and hours off between shift length. Okay. So tell me what was their outcome? So their main outcome was with respect to 30-day mortality and major complication rates as uh, determined by the NISQIP data that there were no differences in either of those uh, important patient outcomes. And then the other area that they investigated, which we haven't uh, explored yet, is the resident uh, uh, survey data. So halfway through this uh, study, which was conducted over the 2014 academic year, the general surgery residents... uh, take their in-service exam, which is a a computer-based exam done uh, in January. And so they had over uh, 4,000 residents taking the exam from all these different programs, and they surveyed them uh, about both uh, lifestyle-related outcomes and uh, training satisfaction outcomes. And overall, they found uh, that the training satisfaction and overall well-being were similar between these two groups. Okay, so the I guess the headline banner finding is that there's no difference between the groups in terms of either patient safety outcomes or uh, surgical resident experience or, or uh, satisfaction. What about some more detailed outcomes? So do we know anything about what the surgeons preferred, what the experience was like between the two groups? Yeah, so they they asked a lot of questions to try and uh, hash that out, and, and I and I guess consistent with what you might expect, they found that the the residents in the more flexible uh, duty hours group had uh, less issues about missing operations, less issues about continuity of care, and less issues about uh, their overall operative experience, and the uh, residents that were in the uh, conventional training group, they reported more time for uh, activities with friends and family, more time for rest and and exercise. So just to, to pick a couple of them to, to give you some numbers. So when they talked about uh, missing an operation uh, for an emergency or an elective case, the residents in the in the flexible group 
uh, only had this as sort of a, a negative issue about 15% of the time. But for those in the uh, standard training group, it was between a, a third and 45% and of the time. So, uh, you know, that was, that's one area where the, uh, the flexible uh, group uh, seemed to have, a, you know, a preference with respect to having time for rest. The flexible group, uh, about a quarter of them said that they uh, had issues uh, or viewed their current training environment as negative with respect for time for rest, whereas less than uh, 10% of people had that issue in the, uh, in the conventional group. Okay, Nathan. So to me, it seems like everything is sort of coming out in the wash here. People who had less duty hour restrictions worked more and uh, people with more duty hour restrictions worked less, but ultimately there was no real difference in patient outcomes. I mean, I I think uh, the more uh, qualitative distinction between, you know, operating on patients that you've looked after in a more longitudinal way uh, seems to be one of the criticisms of more uh, rigid duty hour regulations. And I do think it is a bit hard for us to imagine what this could be like for residents in all specialties where, you know, a certain arbitrary uh, period of time occurs and they literally will kick you out of the hospital, kick you out of the operating room, kick you out of rounds, interrupt your, you know, uh, your presentation and, and remove your computer access for the time that you're not supposed to be working and prevent your ID badge from letting you into the hospital. Wow, I didn't realize that uh, such draconian measures were in place. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that's the case in every single hospital, but it is definitely the case in some because for at least I think the initial period of duty hours regulations uh, being on the books, they were not overly well enforced. And then you'd have, uh, you know, people reporting these infractions and hospitals having to come up with strategies to ensure compliance so they wouldn't lose their accreditation. Sure. And so how do you interpret this result? Because in my way, in my interpretation, it seems like this result reinforces whatever your pre-existing notions were. Yeah, I, I think I think you can, you can definitely uh, argue it both ways. I mean, uh, patient safety is not jeopardized with uh, a more lenient schedule and neither are resident outcomes, but at the same time imposing more strict regulations and handovers frequency that results from that apparently also doesn't result in an increased rate of complications or mortality. So I think you can argue it both ways. The authors are pretty, uh, are pretty uh, even keeled in their conclusions and basically advocate for more flexibility on programs parts to be able to, uh, you know, obviously staying within some of the, the larger uh, restrictions that they, that they did uh, they advocate for residency programs to be able to have more flexibility to optimize the training in, the, in their program for their residents. And maybe this would result in some programs that revert back to more traditional call schedules or some that uh, kind of maintain the status quo and, you know, residents and, and faculty could sort of uh, migrate to, to those uh, programs that uh, they that fits their philosophy best, again, within still uh, the 80-hour work week and some other uh, structure. Great, thanks. Let's move on to our next topic. All right, so why don't you tell me about antibiotic uh, prescribing practices in primary care? I will. So this was a randomized control trial of primary care practices, which found that behavioral interventions could reduce 
inappropriate antibiotic prescribing for patients with upper respiratory tract infections. Okay, so why don't you tell me about uh, what we knew about prescribing patterns in this uh, situation and, and why you chose this study? Yeah, so this was um, an interesting randomized control trial of behavioral interventions that was published in JAMA recently. Its rationale is that uh, the overuse of antibiotics is this combination of being both wasteful and potentially harmful to patients. Um, And we know that it's hard to change physicians' practice to reduce antibiotic overuse. A number of initiatives have been tried. So we have tried including financial incentives, so paying people for performance, and that has had mixed results. Um, And we've tried using decision support tools like alerts and reminders in electronic health record systems. And those can be fairly annoying uh, and in the best of cases and potentially obstructive to patient care in, in the worst of cases. And so this study was looking at some of those decision support type interventions and comparing it to an intervention which is more behavioral. That is that it appeals to the psychology of care providers, uh, sort of classically fits in the domain of uh, uh, behavioral psychology and is increasingly being used as policy instruments uh, and famously being called sort of nudging people's behavior. Did you read the book Nudge? I did not read the book Nudge. I'll lend it to you. It's excellent. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, Maybe you can come up with some clever way to encourage me to read it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like give me chocolates every time I mention the word nudge. I think that's not the kind of uh, incentive that I think you need, more. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I, I think everyone would agree I don't need more chocolate. Okay. So, Nathan, let me tell you about the methods. They enrolled 47 primary care practices in three health systems with three different electronic health records in Massachusetts and California. And the randomization occurred at the level of the primary care practice. Um They enrolled clinicians after participating in an online education module. So everyone got online education about appropriate antibiotic prescribing for respiratory infections. So how did they select the cases where they uh, deemed antibiotic uh, prescription appropriate or inappropriate? Yeah, so this study was based on diagnostic codes, basically, and they looked at specific diagnostic codes for which antibiotics would be typically inappropriate. So things like influenza, nonspecific upper respiratory tract infections, and acute bronchitis. And they said any patient who had received one of those diagnostic codes technically should not require antibiotics. And mm-hmm. so if they, they looked at the rate of prescribing antibiotics in that patient population. Now, they were a little bit stringent because they recognized that, you know, some situations, patients have comorbidities, et cetera, where you might be more likely to prescribe antibiotics. So they excluded patients who uh, had comorbidities. Okay. And, and just, to, just to expand that further, so it, it was at the diagnosis level, not the symptom level. And if the diagnosis was made pneumonia or strep throat... Those, those patients that came with similar chief complaints were excluded from this analysis. Yeah, that's right. So they tried to identify a population using the just the electronic medical records that really didn't need antibiotics. Exactly. So as you mentioned, that their primary method of data collection was through the electronic health records. So, uh, you know, they were 
somewhat limited in terms of describing overall appropriateness in a precise way. So you, you can't say through this method, you can't say, you know, antibiotics were appropriate or inappropriate for patient X. Instead, you're looking at overall rates of antibiotic prescribing in a population in whom the majority of antibiotic prescribing is inappropriate. You recognize that maybe some antibiotics are appropriate, you know, in certain settings, but the goal is to see, can you reduce the antibiotic prescribing in that population overall? Right. Not necessarily to zero. Exactly. Okay. So uh, tell me about how they, uh, their intervention and, and how they, how they thought, tried to do this. Yeah, so there were three interventions, two that were sort of more in the traditional form of decision support, and one that was more behaviorally based. So uh, the first intervention was called suggested alternatives. And when the clinician entered a diagnosis of upper respiratory tract infection in their electronic health record, a pop-up screen was triggered, which said, antibiotics are not generally indicated for this diagnosis and offered several other suggestions such as decongestants, etc. And so just to be clear, that screen popped up whether or not the clinician had started to prescribe an antibiotic. It was at the time of diagnosing the U URTI, upper respiratory tract infection. Okay, that one seems annoying to me. <laughs> I agree with you. So the second uh, decision support was called accountable justification. And so this was a prompt in the electronic health record that required physicians to justify with a free text response their decision to prescribe an antibiotic after they started prescribing an antibiotic. So in, the, so in this case, it's different because they would have to make the decision to use antibiotics before the intervention occurred. Is that right? Right. So you as a clinician go to you know write, type out your prescription and a prompt comes up that says, why did you choose to use this antibiotic? And it's a free text box and you have to say, I chose to use it because of blank. Or I could mash the keyboard and a bunch of random letters would come up and I hit enter and, and then I could still prescribe my antibiotic. Yeah, you could write like A-R-G-G-G-G-G-H uh, and then, you know, hit go. <laughs> that's more thoughtful than my <laughs> mashing the mashing keyboard, randomly, of the keyboard yeah. but uh, that's right. And then, <laughs> sentiment is similar. It's a similar sentiment. So then the third strategy of intervention was called peer comparison. And this is the more behavioral intervention where they're appealing to physicians' pride in their practice. So clinicians were ranked within their region and the clinicians in the top 10% got an email saying, you're a top performer, gold star. And clinicians in uh, the lower percentages got an email saying you're not a top performer with a finger wagging icon um, and a comparison sort of showing them their rates of prescribing versus the the top percentages um, and so they received these emails periodically so the interventions lasted for 18 months so what they did was they collected data in the 18 month period before they started the interventions and then for a subsequent 18 months going forward. And in fact, they randomized practices to a single intervention of these or combinations of the different interventions to look for interaction effects between the, the different interventions. Okay, so what were, what were their main findings? So I mentioned that they enrolled 47 practices. This included 258 clinicians. During the study, there were over 125,000 visits for any diagnosis of an acute respiratory tract infection. Of these, 32,000 visits almost uh, met the criteria for 
being included in the study and for being included as part of the outcome measure. What they found was that across all the groups, antibiotic prescribing decreased. So the control practices where there was no intervention other than the initial educational intervention, antibiotic prescribing went from about 24% down to about 13%. So you could see a pretty big difference with no intervention effectively. Yeah, that, well, that's a good module. There must have been an outstanding module or there was regression to the mean in antibiotic prescribing. The two interventions that were the most effective and that were actually statistically significantly better than the control groups was the accountable justification group. So forcing clinicians to type in a text box of why they were using this antibiotic and the peer comparison group. So the accountable justification group went from 23% initially down to 5% and the peer comparison group went from 20% down to 4%. So that ultimately their antibiotic prescribing rates were less than half of the control practice. Okay. And do they have any um, proposed explanation as to why uh, two of the strategies had a, a significant reduction and and one did not? Did they think that uh, it was underpowered to, to find an effect in the third category that was significant? Or do they think there's actually a, a real reason? I think that their main interpretation is that the behavioral interventions are more effective. Yeah, certainly my perception from uh, just the descriptions would be that the suggested alternatives would be the most frustrating to deal with uh, as a practitioner, where you're where you're given an annoying prompt before you even make what uh, the computer thinks is the wrong decision. For sure. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the considerations to think about here is safety. And just to be sure that the reduced rate of antibiotic prescribing didn't reduce appropriate antibiotic prescribing. And so they did look at rate of return visits for possible bacterial infections within 30 days of the initial visit. And there was no difference in any group. Uh, except for in one of the groups, there was there was an increase when you were basically the groups that were randomized to both of the effective strategies. So if you were on accountable justification and peer comparison together, it's hard to know exactly what uh, what that whether that blip it was real or just a statistical anomaly. Um, but obviously, I think safety monitoring whenever you're rolling something like this out is important. And what about the durability of, of the effect? Was this uh, did they have an opportunity to see if this persisted once the interventions were removed from the uh, electronic health record, or these emails were stopped being sent, or was there plan to continue them uh, perpetually because they may be uh, relatively low cost uh, to maintain? What what was the what was the feeling about durability? Yeah, good question. So they don't present data in the post intervention period. What they do show is that over the eighteen months the decrease in antibiotic prescribing was sustained and continued to decrease even. Uh, So certainly over a fairly long time window of 18 months, you saw benefit consistently and and continued. But uh, what happens after you stop the intervention is not clear. Okay, great. So I think the major takeaway here is that uh, consistent with what's known about mechanisms for audit and feedback to physician practices, this strategy for audit and feedback that included a behavioral component showing comparisons to peer groups uh, was effective in changing physicians' practices. And it seems like for the better in terms of improving antimicrobial stewardship. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, in an inpatient setting, we do have so many more resources like antimicrobial stewardship committees where most uh, primary care doctors don't have any kind of support like that. And this uh, type of work is very important. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Nathan, for a good chat about two interesting randomized control trials. Thank you. Let's move on to our good stuff segment. So tell me what caught your eye from the world of medicine this week. So I saw an article from uh, earlier this month called Want to Save Lives? An innovative program targets one of the big causes of death, alcohol. And that caught my eye. And it's from uh, a study that was done in South Dakota that uh, evaluated a program on uh, legally mandated sobriety programs for people who are charged with alcohol-related crimes like uh, driving under the influence. And so what they do with these people is in addition to maybe revoking their license to drive, they also revoke their ability to uh, consume alcohol. And they enforce this by uh, monitored breathalyzers, tests done every day, or uh, some kind of bracelet that's monitored that I guess can measure blood alcohol levels. And this uh, actually resulted in a uh, nearly 4% decline in adult mortality rates in the communities that was implemented in, in South Dakota. So this is clearly a an aggressive, perhaps uh, in some jurisdictions, illegal effort to uh, deal with the, um, a major public health problem. And uh, at least in South Dakota, it uh, it's been shown to be effective. Wow, super fascinating. My uh, good stuff is about, I guess good stuff is not the best way to describe it, but it's about screening for domestic violence in healthcare settings. It's just stuff. It's just stuff, let's say. It's important stuff. So um, our partners at Healthy Debate recently posted a really fascinating topic, which was an article looking at whether we should have more domestic violence screening programs in healthcare facilities. And one of the studies that they cite was a large cross-sectional study that was published in The Lancet in 2013 called The Praise Study, which really caught my eye and I thought was worth sharing um, with our listeners. So this was a, the Praise Study was a team of 80 investigators in orthopedic fracture clinics around the world, Canada, the US, the Netherlands, Denmark, and India. They screened consecutive women participants in these clinics and asked them questions about uh, physical, emotional, and sexual intimate partner violence. What they found was pretty staggering. So one in six women disclosed a history of intimate partner violence within the past year, and one in three women had experienced intimate partner violence in their lifetime. Um, And I thought those rates were just astoundingly high. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, you know, in the fracture clinic setting, but it's, I have to say, it's not something that I think about that often and maybe should be thinking about more frequently. Wow. That's, uh, I agree more. Okay. So, uh, Nathan, thanks as always for another wonderful episode. It was a pleasure doing this at the crack of dawn with you. Likewise, Amol. Great to talk to you and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter, at Roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.